This series that I've been preaching is called Judging God. Somebody made a comment on uh, one of our live streams and they were wondering where I was coming from with the title Judging God. And that's okay. If you happen to be watching, that, that's cool. That's good. They made the comment, I don't know that we should judge God. And um, the, the bottom line is that we make judgments all the time. We size people up. For example, we have Julio sitting here in the front seat, and he has the audacity and the nerve to be wearing a Yankees shirt. I mean, it's bad enough that the Yankees came to town and spanked the Rays. But then he comes to church and he's wearing, he's flying his colors. Good on you, buddy. We size people up. We could size them up. Oh, he's a Yankee fan. It's, it's amazing if you're from New York and you're a Mets fan. Generally speaking, I have found that Mets fans don't like Yankee fans. But Yankee, no, no, I found that Yankee fans, it's okay. You're a Mets fan? Hey, that's New York. We're all, we're all one, you see. But we size people up. We size people up by their nationality. We size people up by their accent. How they speak. Do they sound intelligent? Do they sound educated? We size people up by the type of cars they drive and the, the name they wear on their clothing. We make judgments. When we size people up, they may not be harsh or critical judgments, but they're judgments. We're sizing people up. We're coming to a conclusion. We're assessing each other. We assess people by the color of their skin. We assess people by so many things. And the reality is we judge God. We assess God. We size God up. And so this series has been about judging God. But coming to a place where we judge God correctly. Not that we are the judge of God. But that we come to the right conclusion about who he is. Can I get an amen? I want to make a statement at the very beginning, and I think this statement really capitulates what this series is about and why this series is so important. In fact, Roger, I would go as far as to say that I think that this series is probably the most important series I've ever preached. And I believe it. I really do believe it. Because this series is all about how you see God. And I don't think there's anything more important in life than the image that you have of God. That is absolutely, unequivocally, unashamedly, the most important thing to me is how you see God. You see, I've been pastoring for quite a while, and uh, people come, people go. I've pastored in New York. I've pastored in Australia, several different locations in Australia. I've pastored here in America. And a lot of people have come to a lot of conclusions about me. And uh, hopefully, uh, some of them are not correct. <laughs> At least some of the ones that I've heard. But the reality is that when people size me up and should they size me up in a negative light, I could get all offended and upset and angry and hurt. And sometimes I do. But the truth is, at the end of the day, the bottom line, you can size me up incorrectly, but there might be fractions or particles of truth in your negative summation of who I am. And so... Well, you didn't have to agree too much. <laughs> People could have a negative opinion of me, and it may be wrong, but there could be elements of truth in it. Don't say amen again. <laughs> I'm trying to climb out of this hole. No, I'm only kidding. I'm playing with you. But we can conclude about people incorrectly, but because we're all floored and we're all broken, it doesn't exacerbate the realms of possibility that there is in you and in me and in all of us 
shadows of gray. And at the end of the day, what people think of me really isn't what's important. What's become important in my life is what people think of God. And honestly, if I had to summarize what is the whole purpose of Rob Scarallo, what's my mission, I am driven by one thing. Yeah, I want every one of us, starting with me, to see God for who God really is. So I'm going to make a statement. We're going to put it on the screen, and I think this capitulates, summarizes, puts in a nutshell why this is what I believe the most important subject, topic, or preaching series that I've ever preached. I'm not saying this is the best. I'm saying this is the most important. Your worldview will affect your everyday life. How you see the world. How you see America in relationship to the rest of the world. How you view our existence and our position. Your worldview will affect your everyday life but your God view will affect your destiny every day of your life. Your world view will affect your everyday life. But your God view will affect your destiny every day of your life. And so to me, judging God is an important series because it's about getting our God view right. Because when we get our God view right, everything else will be more than just all right. Amen. Thank you. <laughs> all right. Very quickly, a little bit of review. Uh, some of the things I've touched on over the last few weeks, and that is... Um, I. I, I I made a couple of statements here. And number one, Adam and Eve, one of the first sermons I preached in this series was that Adam and Eve walked with God in the cool of the day. And uh, I got a quote. We're going to put it up on the screen. If you guys would do that for me now. Adam and Eve enjoyed the blessing of walking with God in the cool of the day. But they never made the time and the effort to get inside his head and his heart. That's why they were quick to believe a lie about the character of God. It was convenient. It was nice. It was a blessing. It was fun to walk with God in the cool of the day. But if they had taken time to have more than just a blessed moment... If they hadn't made the effort to go beyond a fun encounter, had they taken the time to do their due diligence and climb inside of his head and inside of his heart, they never would have been deceived when the devil started to spill out lies about the character of God. Can I get an amen? The next phrase is this, Adam and Eve's world didn't fall apart because they ate from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. I'm going to say that again, Adam and Eve's world didn't fall apart. Now that might sound contrary to everything you've been taught in church, stay with me. Adam and Eve's world didn't fall apart because they ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Adam and Eve's world fell apart because they allowed their image, their perception of God to fall apart. Everything was in divine order. Everything was in paradise. Everything was perfect while their knowledge of God was untainted. But the moment they believed a lie about the God of the universe, their world fell apart. 
I think that's a very important principle. The Bible has this uncanny knack of making uh, stupendously important statements in a whisper. And that's why we need to hear in the spirit and not just read in the flesh. Everything we see about in the beginning, in the garden, speaks volumes about the continuity of life on earth. And so Adam and Eve's world didn't fall apart because of what they did. Their world fell apart because they allowed their perception and their image and their worldview of God to be altered. You see, you will go from divine order to absolute disorder when you don't maintain the right image of God. And you will go from absolute disorder to divine order when you reinstate God in all of his purity and holiness and perfection and you see him and believe in him as the God who is only good. Can I get an amen? amen? Divine order, let's go to the next statement. And by the way, at the end of the service, I don't always do this, but I felt to do this today. Uh, there are copies of the notes. So you have liberty. If, if something you see on the screen gets you, you can take your phone and take a picture of it. I've had people do that in the past, and then they start sharing it on Facebook. Uh, you can uh, come down the front and get a copy of the notes, not because, oh, geez, he's a great preacher. No, but because God is making some pretty clear, defined statements today. Can I get an amen? amen. Divine order is broken when you don't maintain your image of God in line with the truth of who God is. Divine order is broken when you don't maintain your image of God in line with the truth of who he is. When that happens, the deception of the lie you believe becomes the master of the disorder that you live in. Wow. Divine order. The blessing of God, everything flowing, the harmony, the joy. What is the kingdom of God? It is righteousness, peace, and joy. That's divine order. It's also a divine progression. A progression means something starts here, but it will progress to this. In the world, the progression of the kingdom of darkness, and Satan is the god of this world, things go from bad to worse. You all look stunned. Just go like this, uh-huh. If you haven't experienced that yet, I give you 10 seconds, and sooner or later in this life, you'll experience this. Satan is the God of this world. In the world, things go from bad to worse. That is the progression of the kingdom of darkness. How many of you agree that where Satan is king, things will go from bad to worse? In the kingdom of God, there is a progression. There is a starting point, and the starting point in God is glory. In the kingdom of God, things from glory go from glory to greater glory. Amen. Now, how many of you want to live in an environment where things go from glory to greater glory? And every one of us get excited about that and we project forward into our religious understanding of eternity. And I assure you, when Jesus Christ becomes Lord over the earth and the earth is his footstool and he rules in righteousness and justice and there's a whole new world and Satan and all of his demons are in the lake of fire forever, we will experience glory to greater glory on a regular basis. But don't let that be the conclusion or the sum total of your understanding of God. 
because God doesn't wait for the future. He will interrupt the present. If God only waits for the future, he can't be the God who said his name is, I am that I am. Too many Christians are looking to a God who will be and who will do somewhere in the future when God wants to be the great I am in your today. Hallelujah. And so even though we live behind enemy lines, we live in a world that at the moment is governed by the God of this world, Satan. God brought the message of the kingdom of heaven to earth so that anyone who asks Jesus Christ into their heart is taken, is translated, is whipped out of the kingdom of darkness, taken out of the realm where Satan has the right and the mastery over our lives, and we are translated here on earth in a kingdom where Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior and Deliverer. Can you give Give him an amen. Absolutely. And in this world, not just in the life to come, God sent the message of his kingdom and he sent the master of his kingdom, Jesus, so that we could start to experience glory to greater glory. But one of the keys of experiencing the progression of God's kingdom is to maintain the divine order of God's image. Are you with me? So we have their divine orders broken when you don't maintain your image of God in line with the truth of who he is. And when that happens, the deception of the lie you believed becomes the master of the disorder that you'll live in. Sarah. I preached about Abraham and Sarah. And I said that Sarah had a distorted image of God. In Genesis 16, verse 1, starting with verse 1, it says, Now Sarai... Abraham's wife had borne him no children, but she had an Egyptian slave named Hagar. Now, at this point, God had already told them that he would give them a son. But because Sarah had not conceived yet, she came to a conclusion. She came to a conclusion about God's word. You see, the things in the kingdom of God are very usually often opposite to the way things are here on earth. Here on earth, we'll dishonor our word. And we want to protect our name. In the kingdom of God, God honors his word above his name. Because his word defines who he is. And so God had said to Abraham and Sarah, I will give you a son. He spoke to the two of them. Sarah, because she hadn't seen the fulfillment of the promise, turned to Abraham and said, um, <clears throat> well, verse 2, she says, after not having had any children, she said to Abraham, the Lord, the Lord, has kept me from having children. This is the same Lord who said, you will have a son. So now she comes to conclusion about the character of God because in her eyes she didn't see the fulfillment of the word of God. And so she had now a distorted view or image of who God is. And so she says, go sleep with my slave. Perhaps I can build a family through her. And Abraham agreed to what Sarah said. 
Now, I want to make something indelibly clear to everybody here. Abraham is as guilty of having the wrong image of God as Sarah is. Amazing. I got a real hearty amen from all the women. But Abraham is just as guilty. He allowed his image of God to be distorted. He heard the promise just like Sarah heard the promise. And yet he was willing to conclude that the God who hasn't performed yet must be the God who doesn't perform his word. And here's the problem. When we have a distorted image of God, we will make decisions out of that distorted view of God and those decisions will be the decisions that will haunt us all the days of our life. So Abraham decides, well, we'll do what God hasn't done. And he goes and he sleeps with Sarah's handmaiden. I wanna put this phrase up, let's go to the next phrase. Abraham and Sarah's decision, which was made out of a distorted image of God, led to the sin that has haunted the existence of their descendants. I said, your worldview will affect your everyday life, but your God view will affect your destiny every day of your life. How do you see God? Who is God? What do you believe in your heart about God? Sarah and Abraham allowed their circumstances. They didn't have a child yet. They allowed their circumstances to dictate the image of who God is. When Lucifer spoke to Adam and Eve in the garden, he started to play with their emotions and he says, no, God doesn't want you to eat from that tree because you'll be like him. God already made them in his image. He played with their emotions. He made them take offense. No offense was given, but they took offense. There's a difference between when offense is given and when offense is taken. When offense is given, the problem's in the other person. When we take offense, it's evidence the problem is in us. Adam and Eve took offense at the character of God. They allowed the enemy to lie to them about their image of God. Yeah. So, Abraham and Sarah made a decision based on a distorted view of God. Sometimes we make decisions based on distorted views of God. Abraham and Sarah's maidservant gave birth to a little boy named Ishmael. And Abraham's natural seed have been haunted by a decision made out of a distorted view of who God is. And many of us are haunted in life by decisions we made in moments of not trusting who God says he is. Now the beautiful thing about God is that God turns to Hagar and Ishmael and God says, don't worry, there's a place for you in me as well and your descendants will be blessed also. And how many of you know that God became flesh and he died on the cross so that whosoever will, every Ishmael, every wrong decision can be made a right decision in Jesus Christ. Amen. Because he's the God of redemption. He's the God of a perfect will. Can I get an agreement? And so we see here in, in Genesis 16, we, we, we see uh, Sarah making a conclusion about God. In Genesis 18, verse 12, uh, God appears to Abraham and Sarah's in the tent and he says, this time next year, you're gonna have a child. And in Genesis chapter 18, Sarah is in the tent and she laughs. And God says through 
the three men that were visiting Abraham, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Ghost, says to Abraham, why did your wife hiding in the tent laugh? And the Bible says, and Sarah was afraid of God. Second distorted view of God. And so she lied and said, I didn't laugh. God said, I'm going to be bigger than the things that make you small. And irrespective, I will visit you this time next year. Amazing. I want you to turn to somebody right now. Look someone in the eye. And I want you to repeat after me. Look them in the eye and say this. I am so glad that God is bigger than everything that is small inside of me. I am so glad that God is bigger than the chip on my shoulder. Amen. In Genesis 21, the same time the following year, Sarah gives birth to a son, and she, it says she, Sarah laughed in herself. Genesis uh, 21, sorry, verse 6. Sarah said, God has brought me laughter, and everyone who hears about this will laugh with me. You see, Sarah went from laughing at God because of the image that she had of God, she actually laughed at his promise. She could not take it in and believe it. And so often, we can't take the promise of God in because there are distorted views and images of God hidden in our emotions and in our memories and in our soul. But Sarah ended up giving birth. Why did Sarah give birth? Hebrews 11.11 says, Through faith, though Sarah herself received strength to conceive seed and was delivered of a child when she was past age because she judged him faithful who promised. In other words, Sarah in her journey changed her distorted image of God, her perverted image of God, her wrong image of God, her fearful image of God into the right image of God. She judged him faithful. She looked at her circumstance and said, my circumstances are a lie. She looked at the truth of the reality that her eyesight had always given her for 90 years. She looked at the truth of the reality that her natural senses conveyed to her and were always accurate over the 90 years. And she denied the truth of her eyes and she denied the truth of her senses and said, God is not a liar. God is faithful, and if God promised, then God who promised is going to deliver me a child. You see, she came to a conclusion. She put God back on the throne of the altar of who he is. A distorted image of God will take God off the throne of who he is, but not only will it take God off the throne of who he is, it'll take God off the throne over your life. You say, how's that? Because the deception of the lie you believe will become the master of the turmoil you live in. Thanks, Russ. I was going to say it myself. Good preaching, Pastor Rom. Sarah, uh, we put it on the screen. Sarah didn't conceive seed because she was intimate with Abraham. Sarah conceived seed because she finally got intimate with God. The first time Sarah judged God wrongly, and laughed at his promise. 
The second time, Sarah judged God correctly and laughed with God. There's a difference, a huge difference. There is power in the sacrifice of praise. I've walked with God for a number of years. I've not always walked right with God. I think of the kings of Israel and there's a phrase that says they did right and they did wrong. If I have to be honest, and I'm happy to be honest here because what you believe of me doesn't really matter. What you believe about God is what I'm about. And I can tell you honestly, I've, ro- I've walked right with God and I've walked wrong with God. But I want us to walk right in the understanding of who God is. Can I get an agreement? And I've, I've come to learn over the years that there's almost, there, there's this principle called the sacrifice of praise that flips the switch every time. And let me explain to you what the sacrifice of praise is. The sacrifice of praise is giving praise and glory to God when everything else is screaming at you and taunting you and yelling at you, trying to convince you that God isn't going to do what God said, and God is the one who hurt you, and God is the one who disadvantaged you, and God is the one who is not bringing the breakthrough, and God isn't all that God says He is. And when the circumstances are screaming at us, when the realities of what we're going through are like as hot as the fire in a furnace, and we choose to praise God. It's called the sacrifice of praise. You refuse to allow your image of God to be altered to the image of your circumstance. And so often we allow the image of God to be altered to the image of our circumstance. And if we do that, then God will be equal to our circumstance. But when we allow the image of God to be greater than the image of our circumstance, then the God whose image we see in our heart is the God whose image will manifest himself in our lives. Hallelujah. And so there's a story in the book of Daniel. Jerusalem finally falls and the Babylonians capture the, the, the last few standing people of the holy city of Jerusalem. Israel got <laughs> chopped away little by little and Israel was no more and now there was Judah, the nation of Uh, Judah and Jerusalem was the capital and finally Jerusalem falls. Jeremiah the prophet had prophesied if you don't get back to God, if you don't get your image of God back in the right place, even Jerusalem will be taken. Well the Babylonians came, they took uh, and ransacked Jerusalem, they desecrated the temple and they took some of the cream of the crop, some of the young men, and they brought him into Nebuchadnezzar's training regiment uh, to be astrologers, to be wise men, to be counselors. He took the the smartest of the smart, the wisest of the wise, and uh, there's a whole whole story there. Uh, What I love about God is that in every little incidental, there is a monumental lesson. In every little incidental of God, every little, oh, here's a little phrase, or here's a thought, by the way, this happened. In all the little incidentals of God, there are monumental principles. I don't have time to pull out all the monumental principles in this story because we'd really be here all day, and all day tomorrow, and all day the day after. 
okay? But very, very quickly, Nebuchadnezzar has a dream and he goes to his uh, seers, he goes to his sorcerers, he goes to his astrologers. He said, I'm not gonna tell you to dream because if I tell you to dream, you'll just come up with any old interpretation. I really wanna know the interpretation of my dream, so uh, I'm not telling you what the dream is, you gotta tell me what the dream is. And they said, this is nuts. This is crazy. He says, I got my reasons. You can make up any definition to my dream if I tell you to dream. So I wanna know that you have something supernatural. I'm not telling you to dream. You tell me to dream, and when you tell me to dream correctly, then I'll believe the interpretation you give me. How many of you think this guy's been jaded before? Yeah. <laughs> All right? And uh, so... They couldn't do it, so he decides to execute all of them. Daniel hears about this. We're all going to die. He goes to three of his Hebrew fellow young men, his buddies, and he says, hey, guys, we need to pray and fast that God will reveal the dream. So they pray and fast. God reveals the dream to Daniel. Daniel goes to the king, and he says, king, you saw a statue. And the head of the statue was made of gold, and that's your kingdom. And God says that he's made you as a ruler over the earth. And then you saw the chest of that statue was made of um, silver. I think it was silver. And he says, and that's the next kingdom that will come after you. They will be inferior to you, but they will be a great kingdom. And then you saw the waist and the thighs were made of bronze. And that'll be the next kingdom. And then you saw the legs and the feet were made of iron and clay. Because this kingdom will be made up of a mixture of people and a mixture of ideas and the same way iron doesn't mix with clay it'll be uh, brittle he said but you saw a rock being carved out of a mountain and that rock which was not carved by human hand but it came out of that mountain up there in the air it came and it struck the statue at the feet of iron and clay he says that will be the last kingdom, the fourth kingdom, or the third kingdom after you. But God wants you to know you're like a kingdom of gold. Now, I could go into all of that and tell you that Jesus Christ came preaching as the king of the kingdom of heaven, the rock cut out of the mountain of heaven during the Roman Empire, which was the fourth empire. The Babylonians, the Medes and the Persians, the, Greece, the Greeks, and then the Romans. And Jesus came preaching the kingdom of God, and that rock shattered the feet after 300 years of Roman rule and persecution, Rome became Christianized, and that rock grew into a mountain that filled the whole earth. That's the kingdom of God. So in chapter three, Nebuchadnezzar goes to his head and he makes a statue 90 feet tall, nine feet wide. It's a statue of him and it's solid gold. And he comes up with this fancy idea, you gotta worship the statue. So when you hear my praise and worship team start singing and making noise, everyone right across the nation has to bow down and worship the statue. Sometimes a little bit of revelation could go to our head. It needs to go to our heart so that God remains the head. Can I get an agreement? So, Daniel became second in command of Babylon, second only to King Nebuchadnezzar. When Daniel interpreted this dream and he became second in command, Daniel raises up his three buddies and makes them counselors, governors throughout the provinces of Babylon. Well, here's this statue, it gets built, and every time the music started playing, these three Hebrew boys would not bow down to the statue. So some of the other guys who were jealous went to King Nebuchadnezzar and said, you know, these guys are leaders in your house, but they don't bow down to you when the music starts. You made a decree that everyone should bow down. So Nebuchadnezzar gets real angry. He calls the three boys in, and it's really interesting. Uh, what verse is it? King Nebuchadnezzar says, I hear you won't bow down. They said this, King Nebuchadnezzar says, don't you know that if you don't bow down and worship the statue, 
I will throw you in the furnace. And this is what the three Hebrew boys say. You can throw us in the furnace if you want. But the God that we believe in will rescue us from the fire in the furnace. And if he doesn't, that's okay. We're not bowing down to your gods because there's only one God and we're keeping him on the throne. Now, these Hebrew boys lost their city and their nation and their personal identity. So much so that their names were changed from the Hebrew names to Babylonian names. So they lose their homeland, they lose their identity. Judah as a nation ceases to exist. Now they're privileged slaves in Nebuchadnezzar's uh, palace. Their identity's taken away. Their Hebrew names are washed away. They now have Babylonian names. And God blesses them and they're raised up to prominence. And they could easily have thought, you know, if we didn't get promoted, Nebuchadnezzar wouldn't have noticed that we're not bowing down and these guys wouldn't be jealous of us. And if we didn't bow down and we were just minor peasants minding our own business, living in our own homes, we wouldn't be facing the fire. And they could have raised their fist and been angry at God, just like sometimes we do. Because we allow circumstances to warp our worldview of God. They maintain the integrity of who God is. They could have been bitter. They could have complained. They could have come to a lot of conclusions. They came to no conclusion but the fact that God will deliver them. And if God doesn't deliver them, that doesn't change who God is. God is still good, and yet will I rejoice in the Lord. And this was their attitude. So Nebuchadnezzar gets even more angry. Dude, shut your mouth. You just got the, the, the lion even more stirred up. No, they were not going to change their declaration of God. You see, sometimes you start standing on the promise of God, and the more you say it, the more the devil gets angry. The more you say it, he stirs up the fire seven times hotter than what it would have been. Because he's trying to change your view or your image of God. The God of this world is the master of these circumstances. And if you alter the image of the God of the universe, he will not be able to contend with the God of this world on your behalf. But if you maintain the integrity of the image of the God of the universe, he will demolish the God of this world. Can I get an amen? So the story goes that Nebuchadnezzar had the furnace heated up seven times hotter and he tied these young men up. They were tied and bound and he had some of his strong uh, soldiers take these men to the furnace and the Bible says when the furnace doors were open, the heat was so hot, the soldiers got burned alive and the Hebrew boys who were bound in ropes fell into the furnace. When they're in the furnace, Nebuchadnezzar notices, this is Daniel chapter 3, read it, it'll bless you. Over and over again, it talks about how they're bound, they're bound, they're bound. When they fall into the furnace bound, suddenly Nebuchadnezzar acknowledges they are no longer bound. Their hands are untied, their feet are untied, and now instead of three of them, there's four of them. And it says that they were walking about inside the fire. And it says the fourth had the appearance of the Son of God. I love it. I love the irony that comes up throughout the Old Testament. You see God and you see Jesus and you see the Holy Ghost. These three representatives appeared to Abraham and Sarah out of nowhere. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Ghost. And here's now Jesus in the fire. I want to tell you that if you don't let the devil pollute your vision of who God is, that Jesus Christ will, will, will appear and he will stand in the fire with you. Amen. Yay. 
So, <laughs> praise God. Look, I want you to understand something. We all know in Revelations chapter, it's Revelations chapter 12, verse 10, the Bible talks about Satan. He is the accuser of? How many of you have heard that before? He's the accuser of the brethren. And uh, <laughs> did you know that before Lucifer, before Satan can be the accuser of the brethren, he is always first the accuser of the creator? Think about it. We know him as the accuser of the brethren, but we don't stop to think that his first mission is to be the accuser of the creator. You see, before he ever accused the brethren, before he ever accused humanity, he went to the angels in heaven and accused God to them, and he managed to, to deceive one-third of the angels, and they fell together with Lucifer. If you allow the lie to master you, the lie will be your master. And so, uh, Lucifer is first the accuser of the creator. I want to put something up on the screen. The, um, the enemy accuses us to us. Has the enemy ever accused you to yourself and told you how terrible you are, how stupid you are, how ugly you are, what a failure you are, you're a mistake, and you never should have been? Anyone willing to raise their hand? Okay. The enemy accuses us to us and we receive it. Stay with number one. We need to have a deep-rooted conviction of who we are in Jesus Christ or we will fall for the lie. When we fall for the lie, the lie, the deception of the lie will master us. And so the enemy will accuse us to us. That's why you need to know who you are in Christ. Number two, the enemy will accuse us to God. But God doesn't receive it. You see, God chooses to see us as who we are in Christ, not who we are in the flesh. So the accuser of the brethren accuses us to us and we believe it. And when we believe it, uh, when we believe the lie, the lie will master us. Then the accuser will accuse you to God, but God will never receive it. God sees you as the finished product in Jesus Christ. He doesn't see me how I performed yesterday. He sees me in all of my potential, who I am and can be as a son of the Most High God. That's why we need to know who we are in Christ and have a deep-rooted conviction because if we see who we are in Christ, we'll live how we're supposed to live in Christ. Amen. But watch this because it gets better. So the enemy accuses us to God, but God doesn't receive it. Number three, the enemy accuses God to us, and too often we receive it. That's why we need to have a deep-rooted understanding of who God really is. I encourage every one of you, to seriously consider signing up for Bible school. No, this isn't an ad. This is just a fact. Give me three hours, one night a week, to start pulling out religious doctrine and start implanting into you the truth of who God is. And it'll change your life and it'll put you back on your destiny. And that's the truth. If you've done year one in the past, we're going to be starting year two. If you've never done year one, sign up for year one. You really need to join us in Bible school because I can go so much deeper. But this is why we need to have a deep-rooted understanding of who God really is. Now, watch this next thing. So, the enemy accuses God to us, and too often we receive it. Watch this. God... Let's go to the next slide. God looks at us and calls things that are not as though they already are. Isn't that the principle of faith? God looks at us 
and calls things that are not as though they already are. Because he chooses to live in the image of that reality. The image of the finished product. We look at God and call things that are as though they are not. Isn't it amazing? God would have every right to see the flaw in us because there are specks of truth in some of those exaggerated lies. And he refuses to believe it. He refuses to see it. He will see us after the image of his son, Jesus Christ. That's the God principle. But the enemy comes to us and perverts the image of God and too often we believe it. And instead of seeing God as he is, we see God as he is not. It's the principle of faith in reverse. Wow. Wow. When these three young Hebrew boys came out of the fire, Nebuchadnezzar was converted. He said, you don't even smell like smoke. Your clothing aren't even burned. When you read the story, you're going to see over and over again, they were tied up, hand and foot. They didn't smell of smoke. Their clothing wasn't burned, but their bondages were burned off. When you don't allow the devil to change your image of God, your bondages will get burned off. When you can make the sacrifice of praise in the furnace, then the God of the universe will be in the fire with you. You see, I am convinced that everything is about one thing. Whether or not the enemy can get you off your game of seeing God as God really is. Faith isn't an issue when you see the heart and the character of who God is. Everything, me getting healed, isn't an issue. When I understand the heart and the character of God, issue is a foregone conclusion. It's my right and I am healed. Tithing isn't a fearful thing. It's not an issue. Oh, well, we're not under the law. Forget the stupid debate. I can give God 90% and he's going to look after me. When we see God as God is, Satan can no longer be who he wants to be. When you maintain the image of God, put this one on the screen, when you maintain the image of God in the divine order of who he is, then God can take you from the disorder of this world and protect you in the, the divine order of his world. The sacrifice of praise is extremely powerful. When every circumstance in your life is pointing to disaster, and every billboard in your mind is screaming, it's God's fault. And the evidence of your present reality is challenging the reality of who God really is. But you refuse to see God in the light of your circumstances. And you break out and praise him. God will break you out of your circumstances and he will calm the wind, he will still the waves, and he will move the mountain. Here's the bottom line. And the sermon title is called Praising God in the Furnace. Here's the bottom line. The sacrifice of praise. What is the sacrifice of praise? It's praising God when everything's screaming, look what God did. It's praising God when everything is screaming, God didn't show up. It's praising God when everything is pointing to a billboard and telling you, God isn't all that. 
The sacrifice of praise is when everything in your natural self, everything you've ever relied on is now turning you against God and saying, don't keep holding on to this picture of God. The sacrifice of praise is when all of that's happening and you plant your feet on the word of God and you put your eyes on the character of God and you say, I don't believe what I see. I don't believe what I feel. I don't believe what I hear. I believe in the veracity and the truth of who God is. My God is faithful. The sacrifice of praise is when the fig tree doesn't blossom, yet will I rejoice in the Lord. The sacrifice of praise you make in the furnace will be your song of deliverance in the morning. Hallelujah. What am I saying? Well, first of all, let's stand. What am I saying? Everything is about one thing who God is, and whether or not you'll see God as he is. Everything is about that. I could teach you the principles of faith, and probably somewhere in the next 12 months, I'll probably do a series on the principles of faith. But the truth of the matter is, even the principles become insignificant when we see the character and the fullness of who God is. When the wind's blowing and the rain isn't just pouring but it's in your eyes through the circumstances of the wind and the rain in your eyes will it change your vision of who God is? I love the Bible because it's so full of truth. It doesn't, it doesn't cover things up. Here's Peter. Jesus called him. He's supposed to be one of the disciples. I love that. Because Peter, in all of his mistakes, God called him. You, in all of your mistakes, God called you. He doesn't call you because he hopes You'll be perfect. He calls you because he's perfect and you have no hope without him. (laughs) Here's Peter in the boat the first time and the wind is blowing. They're caught in one of those storms on the Sea of Galilee. The waves can get 12 foot high on that lake. They were fishermen. They knew. The cold currents were coming off the Golan Heights, hitting the heat from the seaside. It's creating turbulence. They knew, they knew, they knew, they knew. They could feel the air coming off the Golan Heights, cold air, hitting over a body of water, the warm air coming off from the sea. They knew they're in trouble. And Jesus is asleep. You know why Jesus is asleep in the middle of the storm? Because he already saw God. And his image of God wasn't being altered by the storm. I love Peter. Because Peter gives me hope. He's got God in the boat. Think about it. God is in the boat. And Peter says, don't you care we're going to die? And how many times in our lives, in desperation, things are going nuts, things are going crazy, but it's Christ in you, the hope of glory. God is in the boat. And we say, God, don't you care? Did I scare you from playing the piano a little bit? I've had people 
<laughs> say all manner of things about me. And I thought, God, you brought me here to build a church. Don't you care? If I've heard the lies, other people are hearing the lies, but they don't know their lies. I know their lies. Don't you care? When are you going to vindicate me? When are you going to prove? When are you going to stand up? And God says, don't you know I'm in the boat? You see, your worldview will affect your everyday life. But your God view will affect your destiny every day of your life. And so I'm speaking to your God view. Will he show up again? Yes, he will. Because he's the same God who showed up the first time. Will he do it again? Did he get tired of me? Have I made the same mistake too often? The God he was the first time is the God he'll be forever and ever and ever and ever. How many of you are getting this this morning? You know, with healing, I tell people, you know, we stand on the word. And sometimes people will come to me and say, but I'm getting worse, I'm getting worse. Yet will I rejoice in the Lord. He's my healer. He's my healer. He's my deliverer. He's my dad. And he's a good dad. He loves me. This ship can't go down because God is in the boat. To see God and to trust God will allow us to go from the devil's fury to God's great glory. Amen. And so for the rest of your life, the enemy will try to take God off the throne by making you have an image of him less than who he is. And if we believe the lie, then the lie will be the master of our disorder and our confusion. But when we allow God to be who he says he is, and we'd rather disbelieve our eyes and disbelieve our ears and disbelieve our senses that have spoken truth to us for 20 years, 30 years, 50 years, 60 years, 70 years, when God becomes greater than the truth we're experiencing, then the truth we're experiencing must bow its knee to the truth of God. Amen. Amen. I love this. I love the fact that while I don't deserve his goodness, I get to talk about him and point to him. You all see me on my best day. <laughs> he sees me every day. But it doesn't stop him from being to me who he is. Your behavior doesn't stop God from being who he is. The enemy will try to alter your view of God by pointing to your history and your present. But that doesn't change who God is. He is forever the God who's bigger than our failures. He's bigger than our weakness. He's bigger than our lack. And if I could pray one thing, I would pray, and I do pray, God help all of us 
Help this church and your whole church see you as you really are. Because when we do, the things that are won't be anymore. And they will be as he is. Amen. I invite you, if you've never asked Jesus Christ into your life, this is about realizing he is who he says he is. Don't wait till you're good enough that day will never come. He's good enough. That day has come. Every eye closed. If you need to get right with God, you want to ask Jesus Christ into your heart, Raise your hand and say, Pastor, that's me. I want to accept Jesus as my Lord and Savior. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. You can put your hands down. Who else? If you've not raised your hand yet and you want to accept Christ to be Lord and Savior, Master, you want to have ongoing encounters with Him, come on, raise your hand. Amen. Tom, Donna, will you come? Thank you. Is Donna not here today? This Donna, will you come? Those of you that raised your hand, can I pray with you? Quickly, come. Let me pray with you. Come on. I'm going to ask the worship team to come on out the front. If you would do that. The second and last song, I'm going to end church, but for those of you who want, I'm going to open the altar for worship. And so you're free to go, but if you go, just go quietly, peaceably. But if you want to stay for the bonus footage, for the gag reel, you want to laugh in God, we're going to sing the song, I think, the one that Patrice led, the second to last worship song. Look at that. It's raining from the heavens. <laughs> Praise God. Those of you that raised your hands, everyone repeat after me, Dear God, how can you love me? And yet you do. Jesus, I welcome you. I want you. I allow you to be the Lord of my life and to be Lord in my life. Come into me. Wash me with your blood and let the bondages be burned off in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.